Hello friends, my name is Ian Graham and I'm the pastor of Ecclesia in Princeton, New Jersey. And I am so excited to introduce to you this teaching series, a series that will look at the story, the big story that the Bible is telling from Genesis to Revelation, a series we're calling From Garden City. The story begins in a garden and it ends in a city and is defined at every twist and turn by the love and the presence of God. That God will stop at nothing to be God with us. And so if you've ever tried to read the Bible or you've ever been asked, what what actually is the Bible about? We hope that this teaching series will be a blessing to you. It will be an invitation to see the big story of the Bible and to see your story in light of that beautiful, gracious, life-giving, eternal story. So wherever you are, we pray this is a blessing to you. Grace and peace to you. One through nine. Here is my servant, who, am, who I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice, or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his teaching. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spreads out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people a light to the nations, to open the eyes of that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor praise to idols. See, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The word of the Lord. Did the pandemic make you bitter or better? I think for many of us, the pandemic took us through a journey of isolation, confusion, and disillusionment. Both individually and communally, our way of life was uprooted, and the pandemic highlighted really fractured relationships. I know for me, one of the most disorienting things has honestly been the debate around the vaccines and whether or not to get vaccinated. Um, One side of the aisle is making biblical arguments for why you should, and the other side is using Jesus to tell you why you shouldn't. Um, And I have dear friends and family on both sides of the argument. Watching this all happen primarily over Instagram has been incredibly confusing. And I got to a point in the pandemic where it's just felt like, what is going on here? It's honestly felt like the pandemic's just brought out the worst in everybody, especially myself. I don't know about you, but the minute the pandemic hit, I had to go into pretty strict isolation, 
And that isolation forced me to deal with a lot of things about myself that the rush and hurry of life let me ignore. I was finally forced to acknowledge the fact that I never worked out, despite the fact that I thought I did on a pretty consistent basis. I couldn't stay focused on a book for more than five minutes without reaching for my phone. And I was making almost no effort to prioritize my relationship with Jesus. I had to come to the very painful realization that the worst of me was being brought into the light, and I had two options, deal with it or Netflix through it. I think for many of us, we believe that the pandemic would be kind of a short-lived experience. I remember when it first happened, we were all like, oh, two weeks, that's it. Um, because in our American worldview, where we highlight the self and the notion of autonomy, we couldn't conceptualize something that would actually force us to stop. The things in our society and culture that felt reliable and immutable came crumbling down and we were thrusted into states of disorientation, hopelessness, and longing. And almost two years later, it feels like things are just getting worse, not better. And I think it's in this sense that we actually have a lot in common with the Israelites in this text. Isaiah is speaking to a group of people who saw themselves as powerful, great, and probably unstoppable. They had Yahweh on their side. They were living in their God-given promised land, winning wars no one thought they could win. Kind of sounds like American history class. Then Israel added extra gods into the mix, and they began worshiping those gods and began to think that the blessings they were experiencing were from those gods. In their unfaithfulness to God, their idol worship led them to really horrific things like child sacrifice. And through consistent and unrepentant sin, the Israelites grieved God so deeply that he chose to unleash the consequences of their actions on them. Now, before we move forward, I think it's really important to understand what's happening here is happening in this greater arc, right, that we've been talking about for the last six weeks. If you remember, the Israelites partook in an exodus of Egypt, where they were then led into the wilderness to go into the promised land. However, when they finally reached the promised land, the Israelites were overcome with the fear due to the strengths of the Canaanites. And they were like, I remember that Egypt had okay-ish soup, so let's go back. Because they failed to trust God's ability to deliver them into the promised land, they were condemned to wander through the desert for 40 years. Now, I want to be clear, God didn't do this because he's kind of an overreactive tyrant. It's actually because he understood that the hearts were too hard of the people to be able to experience the blessings that he had for them. So for 40 years, the Israelites were forced to wander through the desert before entering the promised land. Now, if you fast forward to the text that we've read today, you have Isaiah speaking to the Israelites. And you have the Israelites who have entered the promised land They've had judges and kings and victories, and what I like to think of is just buckets of sin. And after a couple of centuries of this, Yahweh decides to punish the Israelites for their sin and send them into exile. This is where you get our prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and others who are all warning the Israelites what's going to happen. But then despite being warned, the Israelites still do not decide to repent and turn away, so they're sent into exile. And this happens in waves. Finally, in 587 BC, Jerusalem falls, the temple is destroyed, and Judah joins Israel in exile. So this is like a reverse exodus that's happening. And I have a little graph. 
Um, and what I think is so interesting is that the journey of the Israelites has a parallel arc to it. So you have Exodus through the wilderness, Moses' speech of remembering. So over and over again, Moses tells the Israelites to remember what God has done for them. And then you have entering the promised land, what I like to think of. If you want to summarize the Bible and just kings of buckets of sin, you're welcome. Um, and then you have what I think is so interesting of forgetting, right? So as the Israelites begin to forget, they're constantly committing more and more adultery or idolatry. And then you have a just judgment from God on the Israelites, and they're sent back into the exile. And the reason why I bring this up is because I think that this feature is highlighting something really important that God's doing in the text. And it's pointing to his relationship with the Israelites. God's actually calling them back to a place of formation because they're no longer people who can engage the blessings of God in a righteous way. He brings the Israelites back to the place where everything started, which is exile, to raise a remnant of people who will be faithful to him. What's really fascinating about the curse of wandering is that God sees this as a radical tool for development. What I mean by that is God's actively shaping a generation that has in them the capacity to enter the blessing God has for them. As I was writing this sermon um, and thinking about all of the ways that our cultural moment mirrors that of the Israelites and the uh, feelings depicted in the exilic literature, I couldn't help but think maybe we're being sent into the wilderness to be formed. Um, please hear my heart on this. I'm not brave enough to make the claim that God caused the pandemic, but I do think the pandemic is extending the exilic invitation to us of deep formation. I think we need to pause here and ask ourselves, am I allowing God to form me into the person who can receive his blessings? We see that God has an incredible place awaiting the Israelites, Yet their fear, which leads them to disobedience, prohibits them from entering into those promises. This same disobedience eventually removes them from experiencing those blessings. And I wonder what we might be missing out on from God, because we're not becoming the people who trust God, even in the wilderness. But this is not the end of the story. As God casts judgment on the Israelites and turns them into an exilic community, he also makes a promise a Messiah who is going to come and bring justice to the nations. If you look back at Isaiah 42, here is my servant whom I but hold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. The Israelites are given a promise which gives them hope. And this hope carries them through the pain and the grief of exile. As they look to the future, they're waiting for a physical person to come and restore justice to their lives. And Jesus does bring justice, but it's not the kind that people thought of or, quite frankly, even wanted. Jesus' ministry happened through subversive nonviolence, that actively worked against the status quo while drawing the furthest out inwards. We have to remember this in our moment of exile, because just as the Israelites were waiting, so we are waiting for Christ to manifest the fullness of the eternal kingdom. It's that tension of now and not yet, right? And T. Wright explains it this way. 
They were hoping, longing, and praying for what the prophets had sketched, what the Psalms had sung, what the ancient promises to the patriarchs had held out in prospect, not rescue from the present world, but rescue and renewal within the present world. Israel's fortunes would plunge to a low ebb and then lower down to the very depths. But there would come a time when God would return in person to do a new thing. Through this new thing, not only would Israel be rescued from the death of exile, the inevitable result of idolatry and sin, but the nations of the world would be brought into new creation the creator God was planning. As true as this was for the Israelites, I think it's true for us today as well. And I think the truth is, as Christians, we've always been exiles. And in our 21st century American context, we've forgotten. Like the Israelites, we've gotten really comfortable in a certain way of life and began adopting a culture around us, forgetting that we too are aliens in a foreign land. We became complacent in our positions of American privilege. But the writers of the New Testament are so adamant in reminding us of our positions of Christians in this world. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. And if your experience has been anything like mine, this pandemic's been a pretty painful reminder of that reality. Um, I've been hearing a lot of language around this idea that in the U.S. we're not living in a post-Christian society. We're living in an anti-Christian society. I actually agree with that. Um, And I've also heard some really intelligent people say that they think it's only going to get worse, not better. Something that, unfortunately, I also agree with. Um, I know a young Christian gal who had to transfer high schools because she was getting so many death threats. And as she was telling me about this, I just had this sinking feeling in my chest that this is going to become more and more frequent for Christians today. I'm just here to encourage you this Sunday morning. Um, But even though we are stepping into this culture that's actively against the teachings of Christ, we're given this radical hope of the eternal kingdom. Looking back to Isaiah, in faithfulness he will bring forth justice He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teachings, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I think we can rely on God's word like we rely on the ground beneath our feet. And from his word, we get truth. Just like from his spirit, we get our breath. We can rest in God's promise of justice on earth. It's a good promise. It's a reliable promise. And you're right to think that there's nothing easy about exile. But I really do believe that there is a beautiful opportunity for us to commune with God in deeper ways than we've ever have before. We have to remember that it was during exile that Daniel slept amongst the lions And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked with God in the fire. There's something about exile that can open up our hearts to relationship with God beyond our imagination if we're willing to trust him. Now, what's the point of all of this? What do we even do with the fact that we're exiles? 
I want to offer just a quick twofold answer to that question. The first is that I think it's really important for us to deal with the fact that the writers of the Old Testament, especially the prophets, say that the reason for exile was idolatry. Um, I've always really struggled with the fact that the Old Testament seems to only focus on idolatry um, and not men having multiple wives or slavery, because one seems to me to be obviously worse than the other. Um, But as I was working through the sermon and praying through the text, I began noticing a pattern that scripture points to idolatry as the root of all sin. So for an example here, the Israelites adopt the Canaanite god Molech, who requires child sacrifice. Um, And this is something that the Old Testament writers imply would have never happened if they had been faithful to God's word. And so I think what's really interesting here, and that just rings to the brilliance of God, is that he always goes to the heart of the problem, not the symptom. So I think one of the reasons scripture focuses so intensely on idol worship is because if this gets corrected, the rest of our lives will follow. So I just want to invite you into a really simple practice of asking God, what idols am I worshiping that are causing me to sin? Um, For me, the isolation of the pandemic really forced me to acknowledge my idols. I'm from Portland, Oregon, and in Portland, our idol is just straight hedonism. I mean, like, pure, unadulterated, do not deny yourself any kind of pleasure. And this is primarily through food. Um, In Portland, there is a never-ending rotation of incredible food that sucks you financially dry. Um, And that, when the pandemic hit, was a pretty rough realization. Now, Princeton's idol, I think, is a little bit of a different one. I think the idol here is achievement. When I got here, I realized that if I wanted to, I could completely bleed myself dry trying to be the most accomplished person here and prove in a place where everyone is the best that I'm the best of the best. And that's the temptation, right, to sacrifice everything to be the best. And unfortunately, for those of us who are in classrooms here, I think our burden as Christians is to become a non-anxious presence that competes against the performativity of our peers. Um, But I think there's another aspect to this as well. I dragged my poor husband all the way across the country to come here with me. And I see the way people respond to him when they find out he's not a student here as if he's something less than. And so for those of you who got dragged here, I think you are feeling the pressures of that idol worship and maybe not participating in that. And I just wanted to acknowledge that because I think it's a really, really important thing to see. And the second thing I want to invite you to do is just to think about how to be exiles in this community. Um, The Bible Project has a six-part series that talks about the exile on their podcast, and it's fantastic. Um, And in this series, they talk about the wisdom warrior, and that's the person exiles are supposed to be in their communities, and this framework comes from the life of Jesus. They're marked by unrelenting peace. They are someone who prays for the community that they're in and petitions God for the well-being of that community. In the midst of fear-mongering and contempt, this person humbly offers themselves as servants to their enemies. Just like Jesus, we're supposed to subversively work in our community to teach them about the truth of Christ through sacrificial love and steadfast devotion to the truth. I know John Piper and I probably disagree on a good amount, 
Um, but I think that he actually captures this notion beautifully. However, Christian exiles are not passive. We do not smirk at the misery or the merrymaking of a moral culture. We weep, or we should. This is my main point. Being exiles does not mean being cynical. It does not mean being indifferent or uninvolved. The salt of the earth does not mock rotting meat. Where it can, it saves and seasons. Where it can't, it weeps. And the light of the world does not withdraw, saying good riddance to godless darkness. It labors to illuminate, but not dominate. In order to be this person, we have to love our community. And I've got to be honest, I have found this incredibly hard um, just all the time, especially since I've moved here. Um, My temptation is to get on Instagram and tell everyone how right I am and how wrong they are. But I'm actually called to a very different way of accountability as a follower of Christ. And I think that that's a very especially important thing right now. We are asked to be warriors of gentleness, kindness, and reconciliation. I'm going to invite the worship team up. Um, but as we close, I want to read James 1, 19 through 20. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. We typically stop at verse 19, but I actually think verse 20 is one of the most convicting verses in the Bible. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how right I am. I have to love the people here with the same patient love Christ has loved me. So just going back to that question of did the pandemic make you better or better? And if it's made you better, the invitation is just to come and get prayer. We have a prayer team in the back. It's not too late. There's no shame or judgment here. I recently got to go on a retreat where God um, did not gently rebuke me of this sin, um, but it was really good. And in coming before the Lord um, and asking my heart to be softened, I just felt the, the pain and the bitterness that was growing in my heart to be uprooted and replaced with the joy of the Lord. So this is just an invitation to come and let your heart be softened in the communities that you're in as we sit in an exilic status that challenges our faith in Christ. Um, and if those of you haven't bought into Christ yet, I just want to say how happy that I am that you're here and that you're welcome um, and that you we are thankful for you here. Um, and I just want to invite you to a hope that surpasses everything in this culture and a peace that surpasses all of the things that accomplishment might say that it can give you. So I'm going to invite Ian up to close us in prayer and lead us in communion.